This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. So what is on the examination table for this episode? Sex? That's right, we're going to be looking at the intersection of sexuality and disability. And to do that, I want to start by talking about the categories of representation. So the ways that disability and uh, sexuality are kind of defined. Then I want to segue into talking about what I think is arguably one of the sexiest movies of all time. And a film that not only I think touches on uh, maybe some components of these categories, but subverts them a bit as well. And that is 1996's Crash, directed by David Cronenberg. So that's a little bit of how we will tackle this subject. So let's get into it. There are essentially four different categories or buckets that a disabled character's sexuality can be placed into. And as we talk about these as kind of individual categories, I think, you know, we'll obviously explore how they don't uh, often exist completely separate of each other. Um, In some of the examples I'll talk about, you'll see how Uh, separate categories have kind of merged and come together. Uh, But the first category is desexualization, or the absence of sexual characteristics or sexual power um, of a character. Desexualization of a character can often be coupled with infantilization of that same character. So when... You know, looking at a prime example, I think, you know, one that's incredibly clear would be Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th franchise. This is a character that, A, we see not necessarily as an adult. They are viewed very childlike in a lot of ways, despite, you know, being pretty large and monstrous in form. We see him more as a contorted version of his child self, the little boy that drowned in the lake. I think where this then plays into for adult Jason is that he doesn't have any kind of sexual motivations. The way that he pursues his prey doesn't have any kind of sexual drive or sexual component to it. He's not pursuing any kind of sexual relationship, either with his prey or outside of that. Leatherface, 
from Texas Chainsaw Massacre is another example that I think fits in very nicely here as well. Although Leatherface's character that isn't infantilized in quite the same way uh, because we don't get his backstory, particularly in Toby Hooper's original film, there is a childlike element to him. He's nonverbal um, and so on, much like Jason. And, you know, his relationship dynamics with his family, all of that, I think, plays a part in kind of the infantilization of Leatherface in some regards. But, you know, just like Jason, his kills, his pursuit of his prey, um, kind of his end goals have nothing to do with sex. So he's essentially desexualized. Now, let's take a step back from our killers and let's look at a character um, that we haven't touched on that, you know, I think is a, a representation of this in a much more subtle way. And we're going to go back to Friday the 13th, but we're going to go to Friday the 13th part two and the character of Mark. So Mark is one of our counselors in the sequel to Friday the 13th, and he is a wheelchair user. And so, you know, uh, he's a dead meat character. We know that he is not long for the world, but um, one of the things that's kind of, you know, unique in a way is that much like all of the other counselors, um, you know, he does have sexual inclinations. Uh, Vicky, another counselor, and he are forming a relationship. It's leaning towards uh, turning physical, and he is dispatched before uh, he's able to kind of seal the deal. And now, in some ways, that may seem contradictory to what I was talking about with desexualization, because he did have um, some sexual characteristics. He was pursuing a relationship with Vicky, but we never see it come to fruition. We, he never gets to have sex with Vicky. With Vicky. He's killed before um, that happens. Even though he is a character that has sexual interests and is pursuing those, we don't get to see it come to fruition. It's, at the end of the day, chased. So this is, you know, uh, again, a more subtle example of how characters with disabilities can, you know, even when they have, you know, they display some kind of agency around sexuality, it's not able to be actualized. So now I want to flip to the other side of the coin and talk about hypersexualization. And this is, I think, best defined as Characters that are very sexually driven have a heightened sexual libido, and usually that is paired with low impulse control. So an example that we've covered here on this podcast would be Belial from Basket Case. This is a character that when given any bit of freedom, uh, pursues a sexual relationship that is aggressive it's non-consensual and we see this both with Cassie and 
the woman that his brother is pursuing. Now, hypersexualization is an interesting category to explore because, you know, for Bilal, it's, you know, a character that due to their disability hasn't had an outlet, a sexual outlet to pursue. And so, you know, he is of that age where sexual interests are there and having not had those outlets to explore in a, I guess, healthy way, it turns to sexual aggression and rape. Now, another way that we see hypersexualization represented is um, kind of in a, in a slightly different direction, which is, I think, really often seen in the kind of, I guess, hillbilly horror subgenre, where you have characters that, um, you know, haven't had those outlets, haven't uh, been able to have healthy sexual expression and turn to sexual aggression and rape. Let's look at characters from like films uh, in the ilk of The Hills Have Eyes or even like Deliverance. Um, you know, these are characters in rural areas that are represented as having some type of developmental or intellectual disability, right? And again, much like Bilal, um, as I guess part of their disability, although now you have the added component of because these are individuals that live in incredibly rural, isolated areas, you know, that then adds a different hurdle to kind of those access points of sexual healthy expression. You know, they're not meeting other people and developing those relationships. And so then you get into, um, you know, rape and aggression, not only being the outlet, but being the teaching tool of sex. So it's not just how it's expressed, it becomes the only means of sexual expression for those characters. Now this segues into the third category I want to talk about, which I, in doing some research and trying to figure out the best way to explain it, it was really hard to kind of find the right language, but I guess the best way to kind of put a name on it is the too ugly to fuck uh, characters. And this, you know, going back to Bilal and even some of those characters, you know, from Hills Have Eyes, those that have, you know, really apparent um, physical deformities, um, they would definitely fall into this category. You know, it's any kind of sexual pursuit by these characters is absolutely um, abhorrent. Any kind of sexual expression from these characters, even if it's not necessarily aggressive, you know, it can be, you know, the character showing some kind of interest, um, you know, prior to, you know, it going on to sexual assault or rape. Um, but, you know, it could be a touch or a look and, you know, a character without a disability will rebuff or be disgusted by this display, even though in and of itself, there's not necessarily anything problematic about it at that point. So it's, you know, one of those kind of messy categories, but um, 
I think is important to hit on, especially, you know, as it connects to some of the other categories. And then the last category that I'm going to talk about, and this one is kind of interesting and one I don't think may come to mind for many, and that's contagion. That is the fear of being infected by disability. So, you know, there's a whole kind of burgeoning, growing subgenre, and it's not necessarily new, but we've certainly seen it, I think, grow in, you know, the last decade or so of what is called STD horror. You know, films like It Follows and Cabin Fever, you know, even Cronenberg Shivers, um, if we want to take it a little further back. These are films where sex with someone with a disease brings on death. It brings on body decay. And there is that underlining fear of if I have sex with someone with a disability or someone with a disease, is that something that I can catch? We talked a little bit about this in a different way when talking about Pet cemetery right, where a child doesn't have the uh, capacity of really understanding that, you know, by being around someone with an illness or, you know, a disability, I'm not going to be able to contract that. And, um, you know, here we have it playing out in a different way, which is, you know, logically, I know that I probably can't get it. I can't uh, contract it by simply being around them. But the sexual pursuit of someone that is, you know, disabled or ill will then mean that that fate befalls to me. Another way that this is also kind of um, uh, kind of plays out as well, and I think it's important to note here, is that it's not even just about me contracting a disease by um, or a disability by having sex with someone. It's then what happens to my child. And this, I think, you know, prime example, it would be uh, the fly, you know, where Gina Davis's character has the uh, nightmare of the child that she is pregnant with uh, coming out uh, as like a larva because she has had sex with Seth, who is transforming into a fly. So it's kind of plays into two different components there. But, you know, the idea of contagion and contraction of disability by means of sex, I think, is something that, you know, is prevalent. All right. So talked about the four categories that... uh, kind of define the way that sexuality is represented for disabled characters. But now let's uh, let's take a, a bit of a turn here and let's talk about a film that I think puts some of these ideas on their head. And that is David Cronenberg's 1996 film, Crash. <laughs> Crash victim? Yes. There seem to be three times as many cars as there were before the accident. I need to see you, Ballard. I need to talk to you about the project. 
Beyond pleasure. Beyond pain. Beyond obsession. It's something we are all intimately involved in. Lies the rapture and the rage of Crash. Alliance Releasing invites you to fasten your seatbelt. You coming? Let's get into our plot synopsis of Crash from Wikipedia. Film producer James Ballard and his detached wife, Catherine, are in an open marriage. The couple engage in various trysts, but between them have unenthusiastic sex. Their arousal is heightened by discussing the intimate details of their extramarital sex. She recounts sex that day with a stranger in a prop plane hanger. She was, however, left unsatisfied. When James replies he did not achieve satisfaction during his sexual encounter with one of his co-workers, Catherine replies, maybe the next one. While driving home from work late one night, James James's car collides head-on with another, killing its male passenger. While trapped in the fused wreckage, Dr. Helen, Helen Remington, the driver, and the dead passenger's wife exposes a breast to James when she pulls off the shoulder harness of her seatbelt. While recovering, James meets Helen again, as well as a man named Dr. Robert Vaughn, who takes a keen interest in the brace holding James's shattered leg together and photographs it. While leaving the hospital, Helen and James begin an affair, one primarily fueled by their shared experience of the car crash. Attempting to understand why they are so aroused by their car wreck, they go to witness one of Vaughn's cult meetings or performance pieces, during which he thoroughly re- creates the car crash that killed James Dean with authentic cars and stunt drivers. When the Department of Transport officials break up the event, James flees with Helen and Vaughn. James soon becomes one of Vaughn's followers who fetishizes car crashes, obsessively watching car safety test videos, photographing traffic collisions, and recounting the deaths of famous people in road accidents. Catherine, whom Vaughn has followed in his car on several occasions, begins to fantasize about him and James having sex. Although Vaughn initially claims that he is interested in the reshaping of the human body by modern technology, his actual project is living out the philosophy that the car crash is a benevolent psychopathology that beckons towards us. James drives Vaughn's Lincoln convertible around the city while Vaughn picks up and has sex with a prostitute in the back seat. A short time later, James invites Catherine on one of his and Vaughn's drives on an interstate to come across a car wreck involving Colin Seagrave, a member of the group who had been planning to authentically recreate the car accident that killed Jane Mansfield with Vaughn. Amongst the wreckage, the three see Colin's bloodied corpse donning a dress and blonde wig to accurately resemble Mansfield. Vaughn photographs the wreck as they pass by. Afterwards, 
when police search Vaughn's convertible regarding a pedestrian hit and run. James James drives it through a car wash while Vaughn and Catherine have sex in the back seat. Later, Vaughn invites James to visit a tattooist who tattoos a car emblem on Vaughn's body. Afterward, James and Vaughn, both highly aroused, have anal sex in Vaughn's car. James subsequently has another dalliance with Gabrielle, another of the group's members whose legs are clad in restrictive steel braces and who has a vulva-like scar on the back of one of her thighs, an injury suffered in a crash. Later, Gabrielle and Helen visit a junkyard and affectionately embrace while lying in a wrecked car. Vaughn and James go for a drive in separate cars, aggressively pursuing each other. On an overpass, Vaughn intentionally crashes his car, landing on a passenger bus below, killing himself. After Vaughn's death, James and Catherine perform a similar stunt, with James pursuing her on a freeway at a high speed. Catherine unbuckles her seatbelt as she sees James approaching and he rams into the back of her car, forcing it to topple down into a grass median. James exits his car and approaches Catherine's, which is flipped upside down. Catherine lays partly under the car, apparently superficially injured. When James asks if she is okay, she tells him she is not hurt. As the couple kiss and begin to have sex near the wrecked vehicle, Ballard whispers to her, Maybe the next one. So there are a number of reasons why I wanted to talk about this film in particular with this subject. I mean, obviously, from the plot synopsis, you gather that there's quite a bit of sex in this film. And the fact that it deals with people that have sustained pretty substantial injuries from um, car wrecks is, I think, where, you know, you get your very baseline uh, intersection here of kind of scarred and broken bodies that are um, sexualized, that are pursuing sexual relationships. And it's, I think, something that's uh, a unique aspect of this film. But I wanted to talk about it first in going back to the uh, kind of categories that we discussed at the beginning of this episode. So obviously, desexualization doesn't really play a factor here because desexualization is not something that any of these characters really experience. These are characters that have kind of a proud ownership of their sexuality, even though their bodies are scarred and, you know, they have broken limbs. Um, as it mentioned in the plot synopsis, you have the character of Gabrielle, played by Rosanna Arquette, who is basically in not a full body brace, but kind of like a torso brace. Um, but they're still pursuing sexual relationships and have autonomy over that aspect of their identity. And so the desexualization, I think, isn't necessarily a component here. <clears throat> now, is there an element of hypersexualization? Well, yes and no. It's a little bit complicated here. As the plot synopsis breaks down, um, both uh, Catherine and James are very sexual beings before... Um, James experiences his car wreck. You know, they're 
both pursuing lots of different sexual relationships. And I think we only get to see and have an idea of probably a small fraction of it. So these are very sexual beings in this world. Um, so they're, uh, the changes that James goes through after his wreck, I don't think, instigates, you know, a further hyper-sexualization. Hyper I think what it does is he finds a different, um, I guess, spark for it. Um, because one of the things at the beginning of the film that establishes that, you know, they're having these sexual relationships both outside and within their relationship, but they're not necessarily fulfilling. There's something missing. And the, uh, I guess the danger and thrill of the car wreck and uh, the danger, I think, reignites kind of this underlying passion. But one thing that's interesting too um, you know, when people are talking about crash, it's always, you know, it's this uh, fusing of human bodies and metal and machine. And, um, you know, Vaughn makes references to wanting, you know, to find that fusion. And even in our opening sex scene with Catherine and the stranger in the plane hangar, you know, she's caressing this uh, private plane. And, you know, she's really having more of a sexual experience with the plane. So I think her entry point kind of into this is really more about the appeal of the structure of the machine. But James's kind of entry point into this world is different. He's now um, on a different journey where he's experienced this wreck his body is different now. He's shattered his legs. He has different scars. And from early on, um, you know, he meets Helen and Vaughn in the hospital shortly after the accident. And Vaughn very uh, kind of aggressively is kind of touching uh, his wounds. And at that point, I think uh, James doesn't realize who Vaughn is. Vaughn hasn't really introduced himself. He thinks he's another physician there. Um, I think he says that he assumed that Vaughn was like a medical photographer, someone who was trying to, um, you know, understand the accident uh, from that perspective. Uh, you know, once he meets Vaughn and gets to know him uh, through Helen, so, um, you know, it's, there's a connection of, you know, his scars and his body now through this heightened sexuality. Necessarily increases kind of his underlying, um, sexual propensities. Um, you know, he's a very sexual being and this is just now kind of rethinking about what that is for him. <clears throat> so now we get into uh, the too ugly to fuck category. And I really hate that, but I'm, again, I'm at a lack of kind of a better way to, to, I think, word it. But, you know, one of the things that makes this film stand out is that 
you know, uh, every one of our main characters, with the exception of Catherine, um, until the very end, is scarred, um, has, you know, bruises and marks from these accidents, and there's a sexual component to it, you know. Um, even Catherine kisses um, James on his, he has a gash um, after the accident in the beginning of the film where um, it's a gash kind of above his eye and she kisses it. Um, you know, as I mentioned, Vaughn is very aggressively like touching uh, his healing wound. Um, he has uh, metal um, kind of rods and uh, contraption around uh, to keep his leg in place. And Vaughn is basically like fondling it um, and touching like uh, a scar on his neck. And it's very sexual. And so these bodies that we often wouldn't think of being, you know, conventionally attractive are the height of that in this film. The scars, the more altered a body is, the more appealing um, it is. The more that they can wear kind of the impacts of their journey uh, on their bodies, the better. And, you know, uh, Gabrielle, the character with uh, kind of, I think, the more apparent um, markings where she's wearing that uh, brace, you know, there's a scene in the film where she and James go to a car dealership and this uh, individual that's working at the dealership is, you know, helping her into a car. Her outfit is you know, very kind of fetish-inspired, very sexy, and, you know, the quote-unquote able-bodied uh, person there is like, oh, this is, this is different. You know, obviously this really hot woman here, but she's got this huge brace and scars, and, you know, kind of, you can see a little bit of that reconciling going on in his mind. But, you know, you have this woman that's just unabashedly and unapologetically, like, owning her sexuality, being proud of her body and not shying away from it. Um, and so I think there is a bit of power to that because, you know, before when you would have a character that had any kind of, you know, um, to use another word that I just like, kind of a deformity, um, you know, it's scary, it's different, it repulses us. But here it's kind of tantalizing. It's, um, you know, it's just part of who they are. Um, it's an extension of them. So I find that really, really interesting, um, particularly in this scene, because it's one of the only scenes where they're kind of dealing with people that are outside of this group. It also makes me think of how many times, you know, we're told, be proud of your scars, your scars are part of your journey, and don't, you know, don't hide them. But usually the people that are telling us this are people that, you know, will say, well, I have my scars too, but they're small scars that are easily hidden, perhaps, or individuals that have just kind of had a different journey. Um, 
And these are people that have apparent scars, large apparent scars that's, you know, have bodies that have been, you know, as Vaughn would like to say, reshaped and um, kind of restructured based on these car accidents. And yet there's still an inherent sexuality to them and they don't deny themselves that. And so it's, you know, not to say that this was necessarily a huge Cronenberg point, but, you know, it's kind of a different take on that. You know, we'll just be proud of your scars. Well, yeah, I'm going to be proud of my scars. I'm going to wear a super short skirt that shows off this vagina-esque scar on the back of my legs. And you're going to see, you know, my full brace. I'm not going to hide it under a coat or, you know, disguise it in any way. And so I I find that such uh, an interesting layer uh, to how we reinterpret that, you know, too ugly to fuck trope or idea in this film. So the last category to talk about is the contagion aspect, but this film doesn't necessarily go in that direction. Obviously, there's not a virus or disease that um, we're dealing with, but this is a cult, essentially. These are people that have formed together to kind of worship at the altar of this experience and these machines that alter their bodies. And so, you know, even though there are underpinnings of this for James and Catherine, you know, I mentioned, you know, you have that opening sex scene with Catherine where she's basically fucking this plane while she's having sex, um, or the guy's having sex with her, she's having sex with the plane. Um, you know, there's obviously a, an underpinning of some of this with James and Catherine, but I think, um, you know, once James has his accident and they slowly start to get more into this uh, group, you do see it take much more of a hold. And so I guess there's this idea of infection there, right? Um, you know, Vaughn was able to infect James, who then was able to help kind of infect Catherine into this group. So there's an element of that, although, you know, I think it's a bit of a stretch, but um, just, you know, maybe a different way to look at it. So having talked about the kind of four categories of representation, the last thing I kind of want to talk about in terms of crash is the fetish aspect, um, because that plays such a huge part of this. And I do think loosely connects to the idea of the hypersexualization. Kink and fetish play such a crucial role in how sexuality is displayed in this film. <clears throat> now, one way that this film, I think, does have issues with its portrayal of fetish and kink is that it's automatically associated with being dangerous and harmful. These are characters that are pursuing sexual gratification through some pretty dangerous means. You know, they're engaging in car accidents and, you know, putting themselves at, um, you know, increased risk of not just bodily harm, but death. And, you know, I think can be argued that that's kind of 
Vaughn's um, end goal, right? He wants to die in a way that he has seen these celebrities, these legends in his mind, um, die. And that's really kind of important to him. But like I said, everyone kind of has a slightly different entry point. Not to say that there aren't others that kind of ascribe to Vaughn's way of thinking, but, you know, I think it could be argued that even though at the end, when Catherine has her car accident and, you know, we have James repeating that line, maybe the next one, um, you know, some think that it's saying, you know, maybe the next car wreck will be death. And, and that's kind of, again, that end goal. But Cronenberg himself has said that the ending is supposed to be hopeful. And so maybe it's, you know, maybe that next, um, you know, wreck will take us to a different place, will take us to a different level. You know, um, there's a couple of different ways that you can take that. Um, so yeah, the film does kind of double down on some of the uh, ickier aspects of how it portrays people that pursued, you know, kink and fetish in general. But, you know, in watching it as... Um, you know, a teenager in high school, it showed me that there were places where I could exist and be. Um, it didn't seem scary or harmful, or I was able to extract it enough to be like, all right, so I don't have to go and pursue, uh, you know, this necessarily, but, you know, kink and fetish and all of these things that I was starting to discover, um, you know, there was space for me there and I could be myself and there would be people that would accept me. Um, so it was kind of a, you know, a very foundational, it's okay to like different things and go out and find other people that like them too. Because that's the other thing here is that there's a sense of community and a strong sense of consent. Everyone that's involved in these accidents, everyone that's, you know, involved in these sexual relationships are fully consenting. And I think that that is in juxtaposition to some of the things that we've talked about, you know, where sexual aggression and rape are portrayed as being a more normalized behavior, where this is, hey, you know, these are people that understand me, understand the things that I'm interested in, that I find um, arousing, and I can pursue a relationship on this level, and we're all on the same page. And I think that that's, um, you know, not to be discounted and, you know, covered up by, again, some of the more uh, problematic elements. I think to go further with that personal connection, uh, I think that isn't really, I think, touched on in the film, but kind of how I connect various pieces is that, you know, I'm involved in the BDSM community here in DC. And one of the compelling and attractive elements of that is to uh, be able to not only you know, explore those interests, but explore them on my terms. 
Um, you know, there's a certain power that comes from, you know, being an individual that was born with a disability that's, you know, my first surgery was when I was, I think, a month old. You know, the scars on my body are ones that I had no say in to where now if I'm going and engaging in impact play, impact play that leaves, you know, some bruises, some marks, um, I'm dictating that. I'm saying these are the marks that I want on my body. Here's where I want them. And there is a power to that. And I think that there is an, a slight element um, in, I think, some of the characters in Crash. You know, they're able, again, it's about being unabashedly and unapologetically sexual in your body, whatever that body is. And so, uh, you know, again, that's one of the other ways that, you know, yeah, connecting sexual gratification with danger and death, that's one thing. But, you know, this also speaks more to, I have now an element of control. I get to say when and I get to say how. I think that probably the best kind of bow to put on the discussion around how kink and fetish is connected to disability and sexuality in this film is really, you know, the quote of Vaughn, you know, saying that these accidents um, aren't destructive. They should be viewed as like fertilizer, the start of something growing, um, the food that, you know, allows things to grow. And I think that's a, a really interesting idea because, you know, it does then reframe some of the more destructive elements that we see with sexuality in this film. Because even Vaughn, who, you know, we can say, well, he's pursuing the end goal of death, he's really kind of contextualized it in his mind. Um, and that's an interesting idea to kind of explore as well. And I think that's a pretty good place to kind of wrap up the conversation on Crash. It's a film I can talk about quite a bit. Um, I love it. I think it's a film that is by large part, very sex positive, um, and particularly sex positive in ways that I think are relevant to those of us that grew up you know, with really challenging relationships with our bodies based on disability. These are characters, and this is a world where that doesn't matter, where they're able to pursue those relationships and own their own kind of sexuality. And it's something that was really impactful, you know, to me seeing it as a teenager. Um, and I think it's something that's, you know, really true to a lot of Cronenberg's films, particularly his films later, um, or more recent, I guess. Um, you know, Map of the Stars, Cosmopolis, um, I think really kind of heighten those, but, you know, they've always, I think, been, uh, part of what makes all of his films really, really uh, impactful and why I do so love all things Cronenberg. So yeah, we cover quite a bit. We went through, you know, how sexuality and disability are, 
you know, kind of put into these silos, but how different films meld them and how they, you know, how a film like Crash kind of subverts them in some really interesting ways. So, you know, I hope that this is something that is, you know, you can go back and look at, you know, a lot of these films where you see characters that are kind of in conflict with kind of sexual urges and their bodies and maybe have a different read of subtext. So as always, thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it more than I can say. If you haven't already, um, please make sure to subscribe to the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad feed in wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps other people find not just this show, but all of the shows that are part of the Pod Squad. And it is a growing bunch um, with new shows coming on. So uh, make sure that you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode of you know this show or any others. And leave a comment. Uh, you know, feedback is always great. And if you don't want to leave a comment, um, you can reach me other ways. Shoot me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. Or I'm on Twitter at Nicole, and that's Nicole with an H, N-I-C-H-O-L-E-N-D-C. So reach out, say hi, and let me know what you thought of this episode or if you've listened to others and you have, uh, you know, some thoughts that you want to share. I love that. So until next time.